Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 17th, 2018. Normal episode today... Light episode, mañana. <laughs> little Spanish lingo there. Not that I know Spanish. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and that's kind of the sad part. Uh, we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is put forward for consumption by evangelicals. It's far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. Uh, people are generally making stuff up nowadays, and Christians don't seem to care. I mean, uh, the more outrageous, the more outlandish, the more made up it is, uh, the happier they are. The <laughs> the one thing that they will not tolerate anymore, apparently, is, you know, <clears throat> sound doctrine. So, um, yeah, this is a, a teaching and training and equipping program. And uh, like I've said many times, uh, listening to this program for any length of time could literally literally cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. That's and as it should be, especially if you're not being taught the truth. All right. So uh, with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to uh, take on a couple of just seemingly uh, unrelated topics, although there is a theme today. And uh, those of you who are new to listening to Fighting for the Faith, uh, I should let you know that every episode of Fighting for the Faith is themed. Yeah, that's right. There is an actual theme to each episode of Fighting for the Faith, and sometimes I say what the theme is, 
Many times I do not say what the theme is at all. And the idea is, is that, uh, you know, if you can kind of put it together, you know, reverse engineer it, it, it'll help you. But uh, the idea, we like to have all of our horses pulling in the same direction. So uh, with that, let's uh, talk about what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin, um, uh, well, let's see, uh, Joy Gigoni, I don't know how to pronounce this lady's name, she, this is her first time appearing here on Fighting for the Faith, and we're going to learn about stewarding God's presence, stewarding God's presence, I don't know if you know how to do that, um, I'm certainly not one who knows even what they're talking about, but we're going to see if we can make heads or tails as far as stewarding God's presence. Then we'll check in with Perry Stone. By the way, Joy Gigioni is um, the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. Uh, Perry Stone, we're going to be learning about the pitfall of delayed blessings. Yeah, I (laughs) didn't know that that was a pitfall, but then again, most pitfalls... In order to be like effective pitfalls, you have to like not even know they're there because if you knew the pitfall was there, you wouldn't fall into it, you know. And so, uh, so Perry Stone is doing a, a yeoman's work here by uh, helping us identify the pitfall of delayed blessing, which most of you, I'm certain, had no idea was even a pitfall that we should look out for. And then, uh, second half of the first hour. We're going to be checking in with Andy Stanley, and uh, I, a lot of requests came in while I was away from the uh, uh, from the Aletheia, and um, you know that I cover this. So we're going to take a listen to the final uh, like eleven minutes of the sermon in question from Andy Stanley, where he's basically telling Christians to kind of chuck the Old Testament and. Uh, after watching and listening to this several times, I'm convinced that uh, Andy Stanley is uh, is something akin to a Marcionite. Yeah, we'll explain what that is uh, when we get there. And then in hour number two, we are literally going to be uh, reviewing a sermon from uh, T.D. Jakes's daughter, Sarah Jakes Roberts, and the name of the message is the the come up. You know, you you know, like come up here. I, I guess. So, <laughs> do I sound confused to you? I I'm <laughs> just wondering how on earth people decide on these uh, topics, yet alone titles for uh, their messages. Because you know, I read something like that, and immediately the first thing that comes into my mind is what biblical text is that person preaching on? You know, <laughs> so the uh, the 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 come up maybe it's from the book of revelation you know where he hears a voice in heaven saying to him come up here i yeah i don't know so uh we'll uh we'll figure it out when we get there but uh, let's go ahead and get to it since we're going to begin with a prophetic holy orders network information exchange syndicate update let's do this An English fair, one evening I was there When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are, standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist That's what the showman said 
I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Roll a bowl a ball. Roll a bowl a ball. Singing roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Uh, so we're heading to Life Lifting Church as we listen to. <clears throat> Pastrix, uh, Joy Gigoni, and uh, her message titled "Stewarding His Presence," you know, which kind of begs the questions, uh, you, know, you know, like that come up in my mind. You know, have you been properly stewarding God's presence and stuff? Did you know that apparently you're supposed to be doing that and stuff? I had no idea, but uh, let's check in with uh, <clears throat> Joy Gigoni as she explains to us how we do such a thing. Here we go tonight is stewarding his presence. Amen. Amen. So, ha, huh. ha, huh. we're going to keep it simple. No, you're not. Yeah. Close your eyes. Let's just keep it simple. No, I, I got a program to run here, so I need to keep my eyes open. Let's just keep it. Remember stewarding, 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 stewarding. stewarding. stewardship asks, what will I do yeah. with what I have? Right. Yes. So since I have the presence of God, what will I do? How will I steward it? Uh, What biblical text are you teaching from again? So we all have at salvation Mm -hmm. when we're born again. Yeah. The presence of God. Okay. Living inside of us. All right. Yeah. We all have at salvation the Spirit of God living inside of us. All the eyes closed. Um, <clears throat> why do they need their eyes closed? Why you're saying these things? We all have. Notice the repetition. It's almost as if she's leading us all into a guided meditation. This is like hypnosis. Follow the sound of my voice. You're feeling sleepy. Sleepy, 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 sleepy. (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. The third person of the Godhead. (laughs) (laughs) That's creepy. Sounded like a demonic cackle. Living inside of us. Say, I have the spirit of God. Yeah, I I won't be obeying you. I, you know, especially with my eyes closed. It's as if somehow I, the people in the audience there are turning over the keys to their brain to you. And uh, I'm afraid you're going to drive their brains off a cliff or something, you know. Living inside me. Mm. Say, I have. This really sounds like hypnotism to me. God himself living inside me. Say, I have. No, I'm not going to say this. God himself living inside me. 
The spirit of the living God lives inside me. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside me. So the way I steward the presence of God is by closing my eyes and repeating after you and basically allowing myself to be thrown into some kind of weird altered state of consciousness. You know, <clears throat> this again sounds like a hypnot a hypnosis technique to me. And sometimes you know all stewarding is what would that be? It's just taking the time to acknowledge that. Stewarding is just taking the time to acknowledge that. Okay. Do you have a biblical text that teaches us that this is what we're to do as far as stewarding the presence of God, you know? The same spirit. Here we go, more repetition. That healed blind Bartimaeus yeah. is living inside of me. Actually, I thought Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. Yeah, it's weird, you know. The same spirit that raised Lazarus from the dead is living. Yeah, that would be Jesus. You know, I seem to recall, you know, there was Jesus at the um, the tomb of Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus had been dead for, you know, a few days at this point, at least three days. His body stinketh by then, you know as the King James would say. And Jesus, you know, said, roll away the stone. And then he called out, Lazarus, come out, you know. And so Jesus being God, second person of the Holy Trinity, the one true God, um, you know, that, that would be the Son of God. You know, I'm pretty sure Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead there. Inside of me. Mm, yeah. The same spirit that multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Yeah, again, that would be Jesus who did that. Is living inside of me. And it, you know what? It just begins a lot of times with saying it. Oh, yeah, the, the stewarding thing apparently just begins by by saying it. But why would I want to say, like, sketchy theological statements and that, that somehow that that's the way I steward the, the presence of God, you know? Just saying it, yeah. just acknowledging what we carry uh -huh. and what we have, who we have yeah. living on the inside of us. Mm, yeah. And to do that, I know a lot of times, you know. Apparently the guided meditation hypnosis portion of her message is now moved along, you know. That's awkward for some people. Or it's weird for some people, right? Yeah, I would agree on the weird part. It's probably why I'm the one who's doing it, Rebecca. Because. Yeah, because no one trusts you, you know, because. Women aren't supposed to be preaching, and they're not supposed to be pastors. God's word forbids that, you know. I The weirder, the better for me. Yeah, yeah. See, uh, is it weird enough? For, and that's kind of a, a strange thing within the uh, charismatic circles is, is that uh, there's a high currency placed upon weirdness. You know, the weirder it is, the better, you know. So 
Yeah, I think you get the idea. Okay, moving along. Time for a Perry Stone update. Let's do this. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head of my shoulder is sour loose. I ain't got sense. God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy. But I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York? Then it is by plane Between myself and I I wonder who's the dumber Is it hotter down south Than it is in the summer I'm a nut, I'm a nut My life don't ever get in a rut The head of my shoulders is sour loose And I ain't got sense God gave a goose Lord, I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut all right, so uh, we're heading over to uh, Perry Stone's Manifest program. And uh, y- you know how we've noted that, uh, especially lately, it seems like the segments that we've been covering, you know, they do weird things with the biblical text, you know, allegorize, you know, walls and stuff like that. And, you know, so, you know, yesterday's sermon from Carrie Shook about the walls of Jericho somehow being a, a representation of you know obstacles in your life uh, and, you know to, to you know that are keeping you from experiencing God's promises and things like that so Perry Stone is doing the same thing but he actually takes the time in this episode of manifest to kind of lay out why he thinks that this is a valid way of uh, of handling scripture yeah I wish I was making that up so uh, here's Perry Stone, and uh, he's talking about uh, the angel of the Lord appearing to Joshua, and uh, he's going to uh, do that same thing we've been hearing other people do, but uh, he's going to explain why apparently that's a good thing. So here we go. That angel, read your Bible, was in the cloud and could see them consistently through the cloud. When they got to the promised land border, the manna ceased the cloud ceased and the fire by night ceased and the angel stepped out of the cloud. That's what happened. Isn't that cool? So he steps out of the cloud and he is there with Joshua and he gives Joshua a plan. Now, I want to keep telling you now, I want to I develop this a little bit more because there were three main hindrances that the children of Israel had to deal with if they're going to take their inheritance. They are, number one, walled cities... That's in Numbers 13, 38. Number two, giants called the sons of Anak. That's Numbers chapter 13, verse 28. Number three, Canaanites. There were seven Canaanite tribes that the children of Israel were going to have to dispossess and take their land. Okay, let's- Apparently there's a main highway there in Israel. Yeah, uh, Perry Stone makes a point of traveling to the Holy Land a lot. And uh, and so uh, so the things that uh, that were keeping the uh, children of Israel from taking their promised land one was walled cities, and the other apparently <clears throat> large semi trucks traveling down the uh, the highway to Jerusalem. Got them again. Number one is walled cities. Yeah. I'm gonna ta- I'm gonna show you what these represent. Number two was giants. So walled cities. Number two is giants. So apparently these represent things. Man. Some of them two times bigger than the children of Israel. And number three, seven Canaanite tribes. Now, everything in the Bible that has a spiritual truth connected to it has a parallel to us today. Mm-hmm. So I need to figure out what the walled cities, the giants, and the Canaanite tribes are that are keeping me from 
um, possessing and taking over my promised land? Let me explain. Okay. Walled cities are spiritual barriers. Because uh, n- no, <laughs> they're not. Walled cities are cities that have walls. You know, um, Jerusalem, by the way, you know, in the ancient world had a wall. And that was a good thing, especially when, you know, bad guys tried to come and, you know, conquer Jerusalem and stuff. So, you know. A walled city is a barrier. Whatever is in that city is held in it. Whatever is on the outside of it can't get in it. All right. Now, now, now stay with me here because I want to show you what it represents. Yeah. What exactly does that represent? Please. Yeah. Number two. Giants are mental strongholds. Uh, where did these people go to seminary? Giants, numbers, numbers 1328. When the, when the spies came back, they said, we cannot take the land because they are so big that they look like they're giants. But we're grasshoppers in their sight. A giant was a mental stronghold. Now, it was real. These guys were real. They existed. But it was a mental stronghold. It, it, it took their mind. It seized their imagination. Number three, uh-huh. what were the Canaanites? Yeah, what were the Canaanite tribes? What do those represent? The Canaanites are interesting because the Canaanites represent trouble in the flesh. Uh-huh. Now, how do you know with certainty that the Canaanites didn't represent, you know, uh, idolatry? How do you know that the giants didn't represent not mental strongholds, but physical ones, you know? I mean, where? how are you <laughs> – where is your uh, orphan Annie decoder ring to tell you what these things represent? I mean, and if I disagree with your – your interpretation of what these things represent, you know, am I mangling God's word? How, where did you figure this out? Here's why. God said to the children of Israel, you defeat these seven Canaanites. And if you don't, there'll be thorns in your side and there'll be scourges in your eyes. Now, In the New Testament, a phrase is used called thorn in the flesh. Yeah, Paul talked about having one of those. So so Paul was suffering from a fleshly Canaanite. I think that's how that works. And that doesn't mean that Paul had a physical sickness. But Paul's thorn in the flesh were the attacks that he constantly came under for the God. Yeah, nowhere in Scripture are we told what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. Yeah. So, yeah, this is speculation. You know, this is just all kinds of crazy speculation, too, which is one of the reasons why we play the I'm a Nut update uh, music for Perry Stone. And I can prove that to you because if you go to Second uh, Corinthians 11, he lists about 22 different things that he had to deal with. Mm-hmm. In carrying the gospel, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned and left for dead, beaten with rods, imprisoned, hunger often, thirsting often, 22 different things Paul had to deal with. Now, that's that was Paul's thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan 
which that Greek word is an angel that buffeted him. And Paul said, the reason I had to go through so much crazy stuff is I had the abundance of revelation. You no, know, actually, that's not what 2 Corinthians 12 says. You're literally engaging in eisegesis in order to somehow justify or create the false impression, the false illusion that your bad handling of Scripture as it relates to giants, walls, and Canaanites is somehow true. This is just flat out, not only speculation, it's, these are wild and preposterous assumptions on your part, and you're trying to pass it off as, as biblical scholarship, and it's not. God said, I have to go through this lest I would be exalted above measure. So God allowed Paul to take a, uh, I call it a cruising for a bruising. You know, I mean, he's constantly, he's either, he either has a revival or a riot everywhere he goes. Okay, so Paul, Paul, Paul knew what that was like. Now, you've got three things going on here, and I want to give you the parallel of them today, okay? Spiritual barriers are walled cities. Giants are mental strongholds. Canaanites are trouble with the flesh. Now, strongholds. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is something, and I'm going to compare it to that city, that keeps you encased to where you can't get out. And the thing about strongholds is when people are under them heavy, it also prevents people on the outside from getting into them. In other words, if people have a stronghold, whether it's a spiritual, mental stronghold, and people on the outside are wanting in, how many know people build walls? They do it all the time. So a lot of times people build these walls around them to keep other people from getting in. Yeah, you know, um, people who have walls or fences around their property, or they're trying to keep people from, you know, Getting on their property. <laughs> so you're going to note here that if you listen to the sermon review yesterday, um, Perry Stone is kind of in the same zip code as um, Kerry Shook was yesterday. But uh, uh, he's come to different conclusions as to what walls represent. Isn't that weird? You know, And this is what happens when you allegorize the text is that one guy's allegorization is as good as the other. You know, how are you supposed to say, well, it doesn't mean that. Israel had to deal with stronghold cities. And the stronghold cities, those barriers were built to keep the children of Israel from getting in. Yes. But I'm going to tell you something. Now, not just the children of Israel. Stronghold cities were built in order to keep all invaders out, regardless of their nationality, whether they are Syrians, whether they are Hittites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, Uptites, and Balletites, if you had a walled city back in those days, the idea was to keep your stuff and prevent it from being taken by others. Yeah, you see, that's what walls, they were very useful at, those, at that time, yeah. God, in any way, because God knows how to take walls down, right? Uh, God knows how to take walls down. Now, the second thing that you've got to deal with are giants, which are mental imaginations. I, 
I wonder if I'm like going to lose my mind. I mean, like one of these days I'm going to be recording Fighting for the Faith. And right in the middle of recording the episode, my mind will just literally melt down. And I'll be going, you know, from uh, that day forward. <sighs> you know, it's just unbelievable. But, yeah, the the reality is is that the Bible doesn't mean any of these things. He's just making stuff up. By the way, this is a very popular and common way of twisting scripture. And when you do this, you miss the whole point. That's, you know, kind of the thing we've been saying for years and will continue to uh, bang that uh, gong, if you would. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to spend a lot of time listening to um, Andy Stanley is um, Marcionite heresy. Yeah, that's kind of what that is. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Gibberish is not one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. presents Church Day Select. And in other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy a prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their, their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, a spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who uh, have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. 
All right, all right, everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's a premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where are you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods are just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. <laughs> I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who was the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box? No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. 
Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Yeah. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that giants in the Bible are not mental strongholds and that Canaanites are not fleshy thingies. <laughs> Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, honestly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Time for an Andy Stanley update. Let's do this.
Lobos Ministry Records and uh, their version of Casting Vision. Yeah, yeah. Whoever said that fighting for the faith wasn't relevant? We're like uber relevant here, you know. So uh, we're heading over to uh, North Point Church uh, in Atlanta, uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, Myretta, I believe. And we're going to be listening to uh, Andy Stanley, uh, who uh, we've uh, noted <laughs> seems to have some Theological Issues is the best way I can put it. He's uh, recently uh, preached a sermon titled Aftermath, Not Difficult, and this was all part of his uh, uh, Easter and post-Easter sermon series, and he's somehow summing up the um, council at Jerusalem from Acts 15, but his conclusions throw him into the territory that is known as the Marcionite heresy. Uh, we'll explain that along the way. Here's um, Andy Stanley. Jewish people living up there, and there are so many Jewish people who are bought into and kind of hardwired to the dietary laws of Moses. So here's the question. Why would James suggest they send that particular message to Gentile Christians? What, you know, what does the law of Moses has been taught in synagogues every Sabbath? What does that have to do with these Old Testament-ish commands? And why these? Why doesn't he say, okay, tell the Gentiles, um, let's see. Okay, do not steal. Thou shalt not steal. That's a good one. What else you got? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Thou shalt not murder. That's a good one. What else we got? Okay, thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's just go with three. Send them these. Why the food thing? And then this very general statement and no sexual immorality. What's the connection? This is so important. Those imperatives had nothing to do with keeping the law of Moses. Those imperatives had everything to do with keeping the peace in the church. Okay. Now, 
What is he talking about? I know, I know. We we jumped in at the end here, and the reason why is I got to be careful uh, how much of the sermon we uh, we put on YouTube, and you know, for critique purposes, kind of you got to obey the uh, the copyright laws, and uh, you can only use certain percentages. But anyway, let's talk about what it is that he's discussing here. So, in the book of Acts, chapter fifteen, we'll start at verse one. And this is uh, this is an important text that has some very good cross-references in the book of Galatians, as well as Romans chapter 3 and 4 and things like that. Uh, but here's what it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So now the important note here, when you read your Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament... Um, there are covenants, and there are several covenants mentioned in the Old Testament. You think of the Noadic covenant. Uh, this is the covenant that God made with Noah and his family after the flood, and, and by extension, all of us and all of the animals, too. And that is is that uh, that he would never destroy the entire earth by a flood. And so what's the sign of that covenant? The answer is the rainbow. So when the rainbow is seen in the uh, in the clouds, God sees it and he remembers his promises of that covenant. In the Abrahamic, okay, there's an Abrahamic covenant and uh, circumcision technically was instituted with the Abrahamic covenant and then made a law in the in the Mosaic covenant. But here's the thing, the Mosaic covenant it, we're not. No one's under that anymore. That has been fulfilled by Christ. And when you read the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, which is written against the Judaizing heresy, uh, that what you know the Judaizers were coming in and saying, unless you are circumcised, unless you keep Torah, the the very specific things of the Mosaic covenant. This would include the Sabbath. This would include circumcision. This would include the Old Testament feast days. That unless you do these things, you are not saved. And those are all part of the Mosaic Covenant. And so Christians are not required to be circumcised. Uh, and there were a lot of Greeks coming, you know, and, and Gentiles coming to Christianity and being brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the Judaizers were literally said, this is a salvation issue. In other words, uh, when you read the book of Galatians, what they were doing was mixing grace with works. And so the Judaizing heresy is a form of salvation by works, and the Apostle Paul and others put this down soundly. So unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the uh, the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
not by works, not by keeping the Mosaic Covenant. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. Now you're going to note here, they were quoting what? The Old Testament. This is from the prophet Amos. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter, the brothers, the apostles, and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. And we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, whom themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, all right, so definitively, the idea of salvation by works was put down at the Council of Jerusalem, where the apostles as well as elders, those would be pastors, were present. Now, the question then comes up then is, is that uh, what, is our, what is the Christian's connection to uh, the, uh, the Ten Commandments? And, and this is an important thing that we have got to pay attention to. And, and the idea is, is that we don't decide morality, you know, subjectively. This is objectively defined for us by the law of God, which is exactly what, you know, it does. So when we talk about the law of God, we understand the law cannot save us. Keeping the law will not save us. That's salvation by works. So what's the purpose of the law? Well, Scripture actually tells us the purpose of the law. And think of it this way. There are kind of three purposes laid out in Scripture. The first use of the law really falls to the government, where the government has been instituted by God for the punishing of evildoers. So the law is used to define what an evildoer is, and the government then, by punishing the evildoers, curbs 
evil in the world, and by doing so, gives a free you know, free hand to the gospel, so the gospel can be preached. Uh, the second use of the law is the primary use, and we'll talk about that in Romans chapter 3, where the law is given specifically for the purpose of pointing out the fact that you are a sinner, and that lays the groundwork for the gospel, so that you understand your need for Jesus to bleed and die for you. But we're also going to see that Christians now have a relationship to the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments now define for us what a good work is. We're not saved by our good works. We do our good works because we are Christians. That's the idea. And so uh, we're going to see how the Ten Commandments in particular kind of get rolled back into uh, into the New Testament, with one exception, really, and that's the exception regarding the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is a ceremonial law. Now, another important distinction, then, when we look at the Old Testament, we recognize that there are moral laws that are universal, and they they are always, in effect, they reflect the very nature of God. So the moral law is in effect, and in the moral law, there's laws pertaining to our relationship with God, as well as our relationships to each other. Um, then there's ceremonial law, which no one is required to keep these anymore. They've all been fulfilled. They were type and shadow pointing to Christ. And then there are the civil laws of ancient Israel, which uh, in many ways you can kind of describe them as you know, coming out of the moral law. It's the, it's the legal uh, ramifications of uh, the moral law and the Ten Commandments and how it plays out then in how we interact with each other. Uh, so the idea then is is that we have to rightly understand the law's purpose, and uh, you don't. You, you, it was never designed to save us ever. And so many people who overreact to the law uh, overreact because they were taught either implicitly or explicitly that uh, salvation is in full or in part based upon our good works, our, our obedience to the law. But Scripture is very clear that that's not how that works. So let's take a look at Romans uh, chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And we're going to note then that Paul is uh, giving a discourse and basically making it clear that by works of the law, no one is saved. And in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, Paul writes, So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. We've already charged that all. That's both Jews and Greeks. That's everybody. They're under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us, by the way. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And you're going to note here that uh, Paul is uh, quoting from uh, either Psalm 14 or Psalm 53. Yeah, the, this is these words are found in both of those psalms, in uh, verses 1 through 3 in each of them, respectively. So the throat is an open grave, they use their tongues as a seed, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So notice that the Old Testament here, portions of it, get rewritten into the New so now then, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Uh, the Greek word dikaiao here means, it's a legal term that means to be declared righteous or innocent, you know, not, not guilty is a kind of way of putting it. So they, no, by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous, 
justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, that's the purpose. That's the purpose. The second use of the law, primary use of the law, shows us our sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. Important to note here, the law and the prophets actually point to Christ and the righteousness by, that comes by faith. Now, this is the righteousness of God. Whose righteousness is it? That's God's righteousness given to you as a gift. Think of it as Christ's righteousness. So the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift. You see? So law and gospel, they're all part of the scripture, but you have to rightly make the distinction between the law and the gospel. So we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, or you can say uh, atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? Well, if you're saved as a gift, there's no room for boasting, and that's what Paul's pointing out. It's excluded by what kind of law? By works of the law, by law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Uh, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? That's the important question we'll be looking at here. Do we overthrow the law by faith in Jesus Christ? What does Paul say? No, <laughs> by no means. On the contrary, we as Christians uphold the law. Uh-huh. Because we are saved. We do our good works because we're Christians, not in order to become them. So you kind of get the idea then. And so if you were to kind of fast forward into uh, Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, Paul, after doing a wonderful job in the book of Romans of saying that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, then tells us these kind of important things. And watch this, verse uh, chapter 13, verse eight, uh, starting verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, love is the law. So we as Christians, we uphold the law. We uphold the commandments, especially the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, not the ceremonial or the civil, but the, the moral law. We uphold it because we are Christians, and that's what Paul is saying. So all of these commandments get rolled back into the new covenant, and they, they continue to show us what our sin is, and they show us what a good work is, but we're not saved by them. So, you know, so uh, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of what? The law. <laughs> so the idea is that we love because Christ first loved us. So you have to write, rightly distinguish between law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, which means you have to keep your Old Testament. Yeah, you can't can't get away from it. 
So um, in Galatians chapter 5, and by the way, the book of Galatians is an epistle written explicitly against the Judaizing heresy. And in Galatians, in fact, let me pull this up. In Galatians chapter 3, another wonderful text, Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that nobody is saved by law-keeping. So he says, O foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes, as Galatians 1, that, uh, no, sorry, Galatians 3, 1, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who works and supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So then those of faith who are, uh, it is know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Rely on them for salvation. They're under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live from us. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, he's redeemed us from the curse of the law. And since the curse of the law has been silenced by the cross, mm-hmm, you know, we, we have nothing to fear from the law. And the law continues to inform us what a good work is and condemn us rightfully so when we are not acting when we are not acting in accord with the um, uh, with the law, you know we're we're sinning. So it continues to show us our sin and shows us what a good work is. But it's the gospel that really empowers us to uh, keep the law and motivates us to do so. So the idea then is is that nobody is justified by keeping the law. That's the point. But it has a function. So in Galatians, at the tail end of Galatians, in Galatians 5, it says this, For for you were called to freedom, brothers, so do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. And you need to know what the law is in order to, <laughs> to kind of not make it subjective, but actually quite objective. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit. This is to walk by faith, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So you get the idea. Law and gospel are vital. All of them are the word of God. You have to rightly understand 
you know, how to divide law and gospel and the, their purpose and functions and which portions of the Old Testament, you know, Christians are under. We are not required to keep the Sabbath. We are not required to obey the Mosaic uh, dietary laws. We're not required to be circumcised or anything like that. So you get the idea. But this is the, you know, this is the topic that Andy Stanley has steered into. But the conclusions he's going to come up with are really not in accord with what Scripture teaches in the cross-references to the very text he's preaching on. He was asking these new Gentile believers to make some dietary concessions for the sake of unity in the church. Because he knew no matter what they taught for a Jewish person, that dietary law was like, okay, I know we're free and I know Peter had a vision and I know what Jesus said, but I, I just can't eat pork. I'm shrimp. I'm just, I just can't. I mean, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? But I just, I can't just don't make me do that. And so they're saying, look, tell the Gentiles, tell the Gentiles, you make concessions like we're making concessions because we're going to have one church. Not to this was all about peacekeeping, not law keeping. Now, I want to talk about this one real quick. This is because this is kind of the outlier. It's like the dietary thing, kind of odd. And then he says, oh, yeah, and abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if I were to hand everybody a three by five card and I were to say, tell me what you think this means or what this means to you. How many different answers would I get? Yeah. Do you think for a second that sexual immorality is defined subjectively and not according to what God has defined sexual immorality to be from the Ten Commandments and other places. You think of a fellow like Joseph before the Ten Commandments were even given on Mount Sinai. He knew that adultery was a sin against God and against his neighbor. About as many answers as there are cards, right? So what does this even mean? You're going to send a bunch of idle, you know, ex-pagans who, you know, participated in temple prostitution, who have a very different sense of morality and what you can and can't do with slaves. I mean, the morality of the pagan world, you know, you should know this. In, in the and what's weird is that the Apostle Paul and other apostles in their writings clearly define what sexual immorality is, and they always hook it back into... The Ten Commandments, you know, it's weird. You know, Paul did that in Romans 13. We just saw him do that. Religions, the gods could care less how you treated other people. The gods, there was no more, there was no religious morality. Zero. Zippo. The, the gods just wanted sacrifices. Now, there was civil law in terms of what you could and couldn't do. But in terms of religious law, there was no moral religious law in paganism. It was a completely separate thing. So to send a bunch of Gentiles this and abstain from sexual immorality, what does that even mean? This Yeah, um, <laughs> do you think that they weren't being catechized at all? And think about this, when the Apostle Paul uh, would uh, go to plant a church, the first place he would go would be the synagogues. And so the, a, a lot of the earliest converts to Christianity were Jews, not not only Gentiles. And so these congregations had both. A, this is so important. This was a general call to avoid immoral behavior, but not immoral behavior as defined by the Old Testament or the law and the prophets. Why? Because they didn't have one. They weren't Jewish. But as def uh, Yeah, what you just said is not correct. And even if it was a completely uh, Gentile congregation, that doesn't mean that uh, they, they had no concept of what 
uh, you know, what sexual immorality was or how it was defined. Again, this is really weird because now he's basically saying that the Ten Commandments have nothing to say to Christians, and that's not at all, at all, what the New Testament teaches at all. I would just, again, point you to something like, you know, Romans 13. Signed by the Apostle Paul, who had been teaching in Antioch for two or more years. And do you know what the Apostle Paul consistently tied sexual behavior to? Not the Old Covenant. Yeah, I'll reread Romans 13 in a minute. The Ten Commandments. The one commandment that Jesus gave us. That you are to treat others as God through Christ has treated you. So when Paul talked about relationships, he said stuff like this. In your relationships to one another, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Any questions? Hmm. Kind of covers it, doesn't it? Means I got- now, let me reread Romans 13, because it's quite informative here. Romans 13, 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, you shall not... <laughs> and any other commandment... Uh-huh, you notice he, he quotes the commandments. You shall... Uh, they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's a direct quote from the Apostle Paul, the fellow he's claiming never defined sexual immorality according to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, um, let's just say that uh, Andy Stanley's fallen off the <clears throat> the the Orthodox bandwagon at this point. He's in uh, different territory people before me yeah in your relationships with one another just remember your body is a temple of the holy spirit and so is hers and so is his any questions no i i i think that about covers it the apostle paul was explicit and specific about teaching on sexual immorality but he did not tie it to the old testament so yeah that's weird i just showed how he tied it back to the ten commandments weird This letter makes perfect sense because it's going to show up in the church in Antioch where the Apostle Paul's been for two years. So basically they're saying in order for there to be unity in the church, let's not offend. Let's not offend the Jewish sensibilities when it comes to the dietary law. They'll move past this over time. Perhaps Consider the implications of what he's saying here. He's literally advocating for the uh, basically getting rid of the Old Testament including, and especially, the um, the Ten Commandments and the morality laws of the Old Testament, which, by the way, are restated very clearly in the, uh, in the New Testament. And with this little magic trick that he's performing, this opens the door for Andy Stanley to basically say he's gay-affirming. And uh, things like that. I'm just saying. I mean, it's clear what the next move is after this. And you need to take Paul's teaching on moral purity seriously because that has the potential to divide you as well. Because you have different religious customs when it comes to moral purity. No, uh, no Christian would have different religious customs when it came to moral purity. And again, I, I would point point you to the Apostle Paul. Let me find this. Um, let me see. Homosexuality. We'll 
take a look. Um, yeah, First Corinthians chapter six. We'll uh, just take a look at First Corinthians chapter six in context here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's First Corinthians six nine. So don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, Ten Commandments say something about you shall have no other gods before me. Nor adulterers, yeah, thou shalt not commit adultery. Nor men who practice homosexuality, homosexuality is a form of sexual immorality. Nor thieves, remember, thou shalt not steal. Nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Revilers would be those who break the commandment to you shall honor your father and mother reviling as a form of breaking that commandment, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were, that's being baptized there. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Strange. Why is it that it is so easy for me to find the very thing that Andy Stanley says doesn't exist in Paul's writings? Weird. All tied sexual behavior to Jesus' new command. The old covenant, the old covenant law of Moses was not the go-to source regarding sexual behavior in the church. More importantly, (laughs) and perhaps more disturbingly, that's a word, or offensively, the Old Testament, or the law and the prophets as they called it, was not going to be the go-to source for any behavior in the church. Yeah, weird. I just quoted two sections of the New Testament. From the writings of the Apostle Paul that restated exactly the same moral code as is found in the Old Testament, very specifically the Ten Commandments. To make this point, because this is so important, I originally in my notes, I was going to put a screen up here that said, in other words, that means thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. But I knew someone would take a picture of that. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they if you put it up as a photograph or not. The what you just said is that that's what you wanted to do. Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. But the Apostle Paul clearly rolled the Ten Commandments back into the New Testament, and he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he was an apostle. Now, another interesting text I think is worth noting in this context is uh, our our discussion that we had recently regarding apostles. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 says this, that, um, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, the apostle Paul writing to uh, Gentiles in the church of Ephesus says that they are no longer strangers and aliens, but they are fellow citizens with the saints, and they, uh, Gentiles, are also members of the household of God. And the household of God is, listen, built on the foundation of what? The apostles, which the apostolic doctrine is found in the New Testament, and the prophets. Mm-hmm. And the prophets are the ones who gave us the Old Testament. So the church itself, the household of God, is built on the foundation, the doctrine of the apostles as well as the prophets. That means Old and New Testament, but it has to be rightly understood, and God's Word actually teaches us how to do that, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What Andy Stanley is sounding a lot like is a um, 
a heretic known as Marcion. Let me explain. Wikipedia actually does a pretty decent job of explaining what Marcion was about. Marcionism was an early Christian dualist belief system that originated in the teachings of Marcion of Sinope at Rome around the year 144 AD. Marcion believed Jesus was the Savior sent by God, and Paul the Apostle was his chief apostle, but he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. Marcionists believed that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. This belief was in some ways similar to Gnostic Christian theology, notably both are dualistic, that is, they posit opposing gods, forces, or principles, one higher spiritual or good and the other lower material and evil. Now, um, Andy Stanley is not a dualist in that sense, but he definitely sounds to me like he's rejecting the Old Testament, and yet the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the Old and the New Testament. And it would define me for the rest of my life. So I'm not going to put it up there, but I want you to hear me say it. Here's what the Jerusalem Council was saying to the Gentiles. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. You're not accountable to the Jewish law. We're done with that. God has done something new. Besides, yeah, no, um, Christ has fulfilled the law for us. The law still condemns us of our sins, and it defines what a good work is. And over and again, just read the back half of uh, the Pauline epistles. Yeah, um, the, uh, the Ten Commandments are restated quite clearly as uh, you know, defining what morality is or isn't and what a good work is or isn't. What he just said is patently false. This is the Marcionite heresy in the 21st century, and it, this is dangerous. This is blasphemous would say to them and he would say to you thou shalt not obey the ten commandments because those aren't your commandments yours are better and yours are far less complicated but they are far more demanding because you see look up here when you begin to view every single person you meet red yellow black or white rich poor vulnerable not vulnerable when you begin to view every single person you are eyeball to eyeball with as made in the image of God and a potential dweller. Uh, nope, you can't do that. Sorry. Made in the image of God, that's revealed to us in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you, you just relied on the Old Testament there. Nope, you can't tell people or let that thinking interrupt your thinking as a Christian because you're just throwing out the whole Old Testament and made in the image of God is revealed in Genesis. Place for the Spirit of God, you will treat them well. You will not need chapter and verse. You will do for them what God through Christ has done for you. Any questions? This was a new and better Day. This was an extraordinary day in the history of the church. Church, no, this is an extraordinary day in the history of the church. Andy Stanley is full-blown uh, Marcy Knight heretic. Church leaders, the church leaders who were closest to the action, who understood better than we ever will. Church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, the value system, and the regulations of the Jewish scripture. Not just how... <laughs> no, they did not unhitch the church from the value system of the Jewish scriptures. No, they completely reiterated that, that entire value system. God's moral law is eternal. 
It was not temporary. Wow, this is blasphemy. Person became a Christian. They unhitched the church from the entire thing. The whole worldview. That God loves Jews better more than he likes other people. That you're to build walls and hunker down and you wait for God to protect you. Jesus said, no, you're supposed to go to other nations and share this message. He's not making a proper distinction between law and gospel. And nor is he making a proper distinction about the fact that the Mosaic Covenant uh, had moral law, civil law, and ceremonial. And the moral got you know, reiterated in the New Testament. Everything's different. Everything's new. The whole worldview, the imperatives, everything's new. And so the imperatives are apparently different now. You can worship whatever God you want or whatever. Hmm. Finally, 20 years after the resurrection, Peter, and James, and John, and Barnabas, they detached the church from Judaism. Not because there was something wrong with Judaism, but because Judaism, the law of Moses, was a means to an extraordinary and besides, the Old Testament prophets predicted it. Besides. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, weird that you're trying to quote the Old Testament while telling us that we need to be unhitched from it. So, uh, Andy Stanley, um, this extremely dangerous, and I mean this, dangerous sermon. The conclusions that he drew are easily debunked by just even a cursory reading of the New Testament. What he's saying is absolutely false. And this literally would open the door, L open the door for, you know, uh, Andy Stanley and North Point Church uh, basically affirming same-sex marriages, the LGBT thing. And uh, this is this is crazy going nuts is the best way I can put it. So... Very sad indeed. Pray for Andy Stanley and pray for the people at his church. He is a false teacher and a dangerous, dangerous one at that. Um, this isn't antinomianism. This is the Marcionite heresy. It's, it's like antinomianism on steroids. And uh, this is not what Scripture teaches at all. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Reviewing a sermon by Sarah Jakes, daughter of... TD Jakes. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now, at Pirate Christian Media, have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the potter's house at one la sarah jakes roberts presiding the name of the message we will be reviewing is titled the come up and uh i don't know how to prepare you for it but let's just say this is that sarah jakes roberts growing up under td jakes doesn't know how to rightly handle God's word, and what we're going to hear her doing, God's word actually forbids her to be doing what she's doing. So, I always say that because you want to know you're dealing with a Bible twister? Sometimes it's just looking you right in the face. Sometimes you have to pay attention to the text and do both, but you kind of get the idea. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Sarah Jakes Roberts and the come up. Here we go. Get comfortable. Unless you like to stand in solidarity with my feet. Come on, somebody. (laughs) My husband and I have been traveling for the last few days. And when you're traveling, you pick up on all different types of just, you know, countenances and you are in other people's environments. And we were coming back from Boston and we noticed as we were sitting at this restaurant that the waitress who was helping us with our meal, she seemed a little bit down and she dropped our drinks off. And then I said to my husband, I'm like, she seems sad. And he goes, well, why don't you check on her? 
And see, so you have to know the difference between my husband and I. My husband has never met a stranger. We go to the grocery store before we leave. He knows their aunts, their uncles. He's invited to the cookout. Me, I go to the grocery store with headphones in. You know, you don't have to say anything to me. I'm fine. So the idea of me like reaching into someone else's business to see how they're doing is just not generic to who I am. It's not organic to who I am. I told them in the earlier service that I am the president, CEO, head of the deacon board of Mind Your Business Ministries. I mind my business like it is a full-time job. And so when my husband told me that I should check on her, I'm like, okay, you know, if the spirit leads me to, I will ask her how she's doing. So she came back to the table and I said, um, you know, about that chocolate cake you were talking about earlier, because I felt like chocolate cake is just a level playing ground. Everyone can connect on chocolate. And so (laughs) I said about that chocolate cake, we, it's generally a bad sign. If the sermon begins with a personal anecdote rather than the biblical text that the pastor will be exegeting, Mm -hmm. God's word needs to be in the primary spot here, Sarah Jakes Roberts and her life is in the primary spot. Definitely want to have a piece of that. And then I said, girl, how are you doing? You know, like, here we are. Let's go for it. How are you doing? And she's like, um, I'm doing okay. I'm having a hard day. And I'm like, oh yeah, you seemed a little sad. What's going on? So now we friends. Okay. I don't know if you all realize this, but we're friends. And so she told me that she was having an issue at school with her financial aid and she wasn't going to be able to go to summer school. And so she was going to have to leave her place of work in just a few minutes to see if she would be able to get the loan and, and to figure things out. And so we asked her how much it was. And my husband and I decided that we would help her so she wouldn't have to worry about that. And, and you know, tears came to her eyes. And I just felt like it was such a testimony that miracles can just be wrapped up in everyday packages. Here she is just doing her job, following what she's supposed to be doing in order to manifest whatever it is that God has laid on her heart to do. And all of a sudden, God just places her on our heart. That's why you have to be sensitive when God places somebody on your heart. You may be able to release something down on the inside of them that is causing them to feel darkness and confusion. But as we were talking and fellowshipping, she went back to serving other tables. And it dawned on me that before that moment, she was serving while disappointed. She was serving while confused. There are some people in this room who are literally attending church disappointed attending church confused. You would never know it because they're still in their routine. They're still in their rhythm. Everything looks like it's functioning on the outside, but on the inside, they're trying to figure out how they're going to make it to the end of the day. They're trying to figure out how they're going to keep the lights on. They're trying to figure out whether or not they're going to get their promotion. I know you would never be able to tell, but there are many people in this room who know exactly what it's like to serve while disappointed, to keep showing up in the marriage. Even though the marriage doesn't feel the way that it did the day you said I do. Still serving the children. 
Even though the children don't look anything like the way you raised them to be, you're still showing up at the job, even with the coworkers and the boss who don't appreciate you and don't say thank you. And I'm still showing up and I'm doing it in excellence. I wish there was somebody in this room who understood what it was like to be serving while disappointed, to still have a spirit of excellence, even though there's destruction all around me and my life is just on the edge of fire. All right. Yeah, we're supposed to do our good works. Despite circumstances, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I would agree with this to a point. Apart, and nobody knows it but me and God. Having to serve while disappointed is exactly where we find Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, I just, <laughs> uh, what? Serving while disappointed is where we find Zacharias in a li- from Luke 1? Text. The text tells us just a few scriptures up that Zacharias and Elizabeth, that they were faithful. They followed all of the ordinances of the Lord and they were righteous before God. But these aren't the kind of people who were righteous before God because it was easy. God wasn't this genie who gave them everything they asked for. Zacharias and Elizabeth wanted a son, but she was barren. And then when she wasn't barren, or maybe God could have healed her from being barren, then they became too old to even have children any longer. And yet they were still righteous before God. I think that's powerful. Because if culture would define our relationship with God, it would suggest that our worship and our praise is the most powerful when God answers our prayers. And I would like to submit for your consideration that our worship and our prayer and our praise is most powerful when he has disappointed us, but we still lift our hands anyway. There are some people in this room who are still serving God, not because he healed their mother, not because he gave them the job, not because they got the raise or got the promotion, but because they recognize that my faithfulness to God is not contingent on whether or not he does what I ask him to do. It's based on him being who he is, because I know at the end of the day, he's going to make all things work together for my good. So I'm serving while disappointed because I trust the one who has created the plan in the first place. I wish I just had a few people in this room who didn't mind thanking God for allowing us a place to still serve even through disappointment. You see, some people served God and got mad and left when he didn't do what they wanted him to do. They left the church. They they left their faith altogether. But there are some people in this room who had to hang on to their faith by a thread. It wasn't easy for me to stay. It wasn't easy for me to keep on worshiping. But I trust in whom I believe. It wasn't easy for me to keep my head held high when I was burying my parents. But I trust in whom I believe. I believe, I believe, I believe he's going to make this thing turn out for my good. I believe, I believe, I believe that even if he doesn't do it the way I wanted him to, that it's going to turn out exactly the way that it should, because that's the kind of God I serve. I'm not looking for a genie. I'm looking for a king. I'm not looking for some. Okay, uh, we're getting the crowd worked up here, uh, which is one of the techniques her father um really perfected so she's she's got those chops but you see the thing is is that the job of a pastor is to preach the word and i'm not hearing any word yet now maybe i'm hearing some things that may be true ish you know some more true ish than others 
Um, and, you know, there's some perspective here that uh, may be true-ish, but the job of a pastor is to preach the word. And so you mentioned Zechariah and Elizabeth, but you haven't exegeted the text. So we, we got some problems here. To just do what I say. Otherwise, that would make me God. But I am submitted under the mighty hand of God. Any way you want to do it, God, I'll be satisfied. Even if I have to do it. Do what exactly? Disappointed. So we got to do life disappointed. Life is difficult indeed, yes. Even if I have to do it, divorced. Even if I have to do it through rehab, even if I have to do it when I feel like I'm losing my child, I'm going to do it, God. I'm going to do it because me serving you is a reflection of how you've served me. And when I disappointed you, grace still caught me. And when I disappointed you, grace still made a way. And so if I'm honest... While I was studying, something came to mind, and I didn't even know if it was proper to say. But I felt like in order for Zacharias and Elizabeth to stay faithful, that they had to be willing to forgive God. What? No text says that Zacharias and Elizabeth had to forgive God. Wow. So, see, this is what happens when you don't work from a text. Yeah, you you engage in speculation and you start sticking stuff into the text that ain't there. Job of a pastor is to preach the word, to exegete, to help us understand the proper sense. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Let's take a look at the text in question. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Righteousness comes by faith. Walking blamelessly in all of the commandments. These are the, you know, so blameless in front of men. Righteous before God and the statutes of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Yeah, Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. And he had a miraculous birth to a barren woman. And even more miraculous was cousin uh, cousin Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary. There are no wombs more barren than virgin wombs, if you would. Uh, But uh, Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. The angel said, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And you will give have a son, you call him John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Yeah, pretty straightforward here, and you're going to note that all of this is leading up to the birth of Christ, because the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus. And nowhere in the text are we led to believe that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had to forgive God. Yeah, this this is a big problem. For not answering their prayers. You know what makes us as believers angry with God? When he doesn't do what we thought he was going to do. And we can still come to church and we can still sing the songs and we can still lift our hands. But if we're honest, we have a little bit of a barricade between us and God. And there are people in this room and and people perhaps watching over the internet who have to take a minute and come to the reality that you and God's relationship requires some reconciliation. I want to be honest and say that when you didn't answer that prayer, that I got bitter. That when you didn't answer that prayer, I got frustrated that I turned my back on my faith. When you didn't answer that prayer, I gave up and I stopped believing in love. When you didn't fix my marriage, when you didn't heal my mother, when I asked you to do something and you didn't do it, that thing almost broke me. And I've been angry with God because he didn't answer my prayers. I'm still coming to church. I'm still singing. But there's this block where there used to be trust. Because I thought that I could pray and ask you to do something. And that you would come through for me. But the reality is that part of us forgiving God depends on us realizing that we have to trust him. Yeah, um, God has never done me wrong even in the midst of the worst suffering I've ever experienced. I have never once needed to forgive God. I have been in much need of his forgiveness. You think of Job and all of the suffering that he went through, and nowhere are we led to believe that Job was in need of forgiving God for all the misery that he suffered. And I can forgive you. For not living up to my plan. Because I trust that your plan will be greater. And I know that. Because I have a track record. Of when you didn't answer my prayers. But what you gave me in return. After you didn't answer my prayers. Was greater than anything I could imagine. So I'm not going to let this one disappointment. Change the way I connect with you. For the rest of my life. That would be the enemy creating a wedge. Between me and my savior. So right here in this moment. I'm just going to go ahead and say. God I am forgiving you. For not for me not trusting in your plan. Man. God does not need our forgiveness. Or an absolution from us. This is blasphemy. I'm not going to give the enemy any room. I'm not going to give depression. I'm not going to give doubt. I'm not going to give second guessing any room because in order for me to win at this thing called life, I got to be tied so closely with him that there is no room for division. 
And the only thing that is currently dividing some of us from God is that he didn't live up to the expectation we had. And I hear God saying, I didn't live up to your expectation because your expectation was too low. And if I would have kept you. So she just claimed direct revelation from God. So the reason why God didn't meet our expectations, because our expectations were too low. Maybe they were sinful. In that situation, you would have never been forced to grow. You would have never been forced to create. You would have never been forced to start the business. You would have never been forced to stand on your own two feet. I know you wanted help. I know you wanted someone to be there for you. I know you wanted it to work out a certain way, but I moved the support system so that all you could count on was me. Otherwise, that thing that you were praying for would have been your God. And I want to be the only God. I'm a jealous God. And I got to know that when I give it to you, you'll worship the one who gave it to you and not the thing that I gave. And they're clapping for this direct revelation. Wow. So Zacharias and Elizabeth are still serving and they're still being righteous in spite of the fact that they've been disappointed. And they did what a lot of us have to do when we are committed to not allowing our circumstance to change our relationship with God. They bury that prayer. They say, you know what? It's not God's will. And I'm okay with that. So I'm going to bury that prayer. But I'm going to stay faithful and committed. And in the. Yet the text makes it clear that God actually answered that prayer. That's what Gabriel said. The process of Zacharias staying faithful and committed. They cast the lots and he is chosen to take care and tend to the altar of incense inside of the... Notice she's not actually reading the text. She's speaking it from memory. She's summarizing it. This is, you know, kind of the Cliff Notes version of this text. You have plenty of time, Sarah. Why don't you open up the text and, you know, exegete it? And that may sound routine for those of you who have not studied the way that I looked into this text. But the reality is that at that time, there were 18,000 priests serving the temple. And so for him to be chosen to tend to the altar of incense was a one in 18,000 people chance. But because he remained faithful... And because he did not allow bitterness to change who he was, God could trust him. Yeah, no text says that God can trust him because he never got bitter. You stuck that in the text, but it's not there in Luke 1. Another level of glory. Got to say it the way I, I studied it. Because he didn't get mad when God didn't answer his prayers. Because you didn't get mad when God didn't answer your prayers. Yeah, I got frustrated. Yeah, I almost gave up, but I've still been watching on the live stream. I've still been coming into church. I've still been sowing. I didn't give up completely. I still kept showing up. God said, because you kept your heart in the right place, in spite of the many reasons that you had to walk away, now I can trust you with another level of glory. I feel like this is utter blasphemy. This text does not say anything like that. And this theology is basically a merit-based theology where you earn things from God. Wow. 
Somebody needs to understand that God has been watching you and he knows you walked into this room with a limp and he knows that everything hasn't been easy for you. But I hear God saying that because you kept on, because you pressed. You're not hearing God say nothing, lady. The things you think are God, that's actually the devil whispering in your ear. And when everyone else was giving up, I'm going to pull you up. I'm going to pull you up. I'm going to pull you up. I know that's hard to believe because some of you have been so disappointed. And the last time you trusted that God was going to pull you up, he failed. But I'm telling you that this is a prophetic word. I've been speaking in four different cities. I've been on three different airplanes. But I knew when I got this word last night that it was for somebody. If it is not for you, just clap your hands for the person beside you. But I hear God saying that I have been watching how you have been sowing. I have been watching how you have been checking your heart. And checking your attitude and checking your mouth and surrendering to the love of God in spite of the jealousy and envy that you could be surrendered to. And I hear God saying, now I'm getting ready to pull you up to the next level of glory. I can trust you. Mm -hmm. This is a theology of glory in the truest sense. What I'm doing because you didn't make what you wanted more important than what I was doing. (sighs) Going to trust you with the next level of glory. I'm getting ready to pull you up. I'm getting ready to pull you up. I'm getting ready to pull you up. I just keep hearing that for somebody. I'm getting. No, you're not. You're not hearing from God. Ready to pull you up. You are about to become intimately acquainted with something you once only knew from a distance. I'm about to pull you to the holies of holies. Zacharias was a priest. He knew all of the, the outer courts and the inner courts. He knew exactly what the temple was supposed to look like, yet he had never been in it. He was on the outside looking in until this moment. But God says, because you stayed faithful. You are going to become intimately acquainted with something you once only knew from a distance. Intimately acquainted. Intimately acquainted with success. You used to only see success from the outside looking in, but because you remain faithful, now you are going to be intimately acquainted with the level of success that you have been exposed to. What am I saying? I'm saying you need to start taking notes of what you've been exposed to. Start taking notes of the things that seemed out of your... Yeah, I'm making a note. I'm being exposed to rank heresy from a false prophetess. The truth is, if it was really out of your league, you would have never been exposed to it. But because God exposed you to it, he was trying to show you a preview of a coming attraction. Somebody ought to get happy because you spent your whole life on the outside looking in. God was not haunting you or taunting you. He was trying to show you what he was preparing for you. And the moment that he decided that you were ready, you'll be pulled up into that next level of glory. I promise you, he is not a man that he shall lie. He is not into the business of making a mock god didn't promise any of these things you're the liar here not god out of his children intimately acquainted i'm gonna know it for myself i'm gonna know it for myself and sometimes he exposes you from a distant level so that you can learn from the mistakes at that vantage point so that when you get in it you're armed with the experience of watching someone else and you can do it better Intimately acquainted. And so Zacharias is going into the temple. And he's taking care of the altar of incense. The altar of incense is a symbol of prayer 
The same way that Christ is constantly interceding on our behalf, the altar of incense must constantly be kept burning. The smoke has to constantly be ascending to heaven. And while Zacharias is in there tending to the altar of incense, there are people outside praying at the same time that he's tending to the altar. And so I can imagine being Zacharias and finally being allowed access into the temple and how careful and reverent he had to have been in that moment. You see, what keeps some of us from being pulled up to that next dimension is that the moment we get in there, we want to take a selfie to show everybody that we got upgraded. (laughs) What are you talking about? I want everybody to see how I'm on the next level now. But when you're really on the next level, there's such a reverence because you know you really shouldn't be there. And you know that it's only by God's grace alone that you're even in the room. So you don't have time to prove to anybody else that you're in the room. You're trying to make sure that you live a life worthy of staying in the room. That you're trying to live a life worthy of bringing honor and value. None of the things you're talking about have anything to do with what's going on in Luke 1. Luke 1 begins to tell us the accounts of the, really the birth of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the of prophet, prophecy of Malachi of the forerunner of Christ, who is John the Baptist. This is all about Jesus, and you've turned this to be all about you. You're missing the whole point. You have no right to be preaching, number one. And number two, the doctrines you're teaching are not the doctrines of the apostles. This is a completely different doctrine. This is not biblical. This is narcissistic. And this woman claims direct revelation from God. She's not hearing from God at all. Wow. We continue to the room. You don't have time to do it for the gram. You don't have the time to do it for social media. You're only there because you want to serve what God is doing in that room. You can be pulled up when God can trust your service in those rooms. And so he's tending to the altar of incense, which represents the prayer. Yeah. So if you don't get pulled up, you just weren't worthy enough. It's all your fault. You didn't do what was necessary of the Hebrew people and as he's taking care of the altar of incense I can only imagine what it's like to tend to someone else's prayers when your prayers haven't been answered yourself you can only imagine and that's the problem you're using your imagination rather than exegeting a text which by the way you should never be doing in a sermon Uh, to an entire congregation. Women are forbidden from doing what you're doing. How clean your hands have to be to handle someone else's desires when you're still praying that God would manifest the desires that are down on the inside of your heart. I don't mind working for someone else. It's just sometimes I wish that I was working for that business that God placed down on the inside of me. I don't mind being on somebody's set. It's just sometimes I wish that we were on the set for the movie that God placed down on the inside of me. I don't mind reading someone else's book. It's just sometimes I wish that someone would be reading the book that God placed down on the inside of me. And yet Zacharias is still tending to the altar. Me, 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 me. I, 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 yeah, this is all about you, 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 you. Of instance, he's still taking care of someone else's prayers. What humility 
is required for us to live our life in such a way that we can honor and celebrate what God is doing in someone else's life without being envious and upset or distressed that he's not doing it in our own. So when we find Zacharias in the text, he's tending to the altar of incense. And the angel of the Lord appears to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When I was imagining, as I was reading this text, just being Zacharias, he's fine. When, when she was imagining, you see, yeah, this is imagination, Jesus, yeah, whatever. Finally made his way into the temple and he's finally taking care of the altar of incense. And the text tells us that he got afraid. And I wondered why he got afraid. I mean, it seems like if you're in the holies of holies and an angel appears that that should be like a good thing, you know. I would think, you know, and then I thought about if an angel appeared to me <laughs> and I would be like, Lord, is this it? Is this, is it, it's over now? It would never dawn on me that maybe he was about to answer a prayer of mine. It just made me think about how sometimes God blesses us and we wonder if it's too good to be true. And we get afraid in the midst of the blessing because if we're honest, we're wondering at any moment, is God going to pull the rug from underneath us and show us that maybe we weren't supposed to be here in the first place? Maybe I'm working at a job that I'm not really qualified for. This text isn't about you. It's about the birth of Christ and the birth of John the Baptist and God fulfilling his promises to send us a savior and a messiah. Every time the boss calls me into the office, I'm wondering, is this going to be the moment where they realize that I have not been doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing the whole time? It just happened to be working because God was making up the difference. The angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias. And I'm thinking to myself, another reason why he had to be afraid is because everyone is outside praying. And everyone knows exactly how this routine is supposed to go. And now the angel of the Lord has appeared and perhaps he's wondering if he's messed it up. And I'm thinking how people are on the outside looking in of our own lives and they think that everything is going as planned. But on the inside, we're just hoping that we haven't messed it up, that I haven't said anything that's going to go too far, that I haven't done anything that's going to rip the veil off from underneath me. I'm just hoping that the people on the outside looking in recognize that I am just as nervous on the inside as they are on the outside and the angel of the Lord appears and says to Zacharias that you and your wife, you're going to have a child and he should be rejoicing. But there was something about what he said. And it made me realize why Zacharias didn't rejoice when it begins in verse 13. It says, do not be afraid Zacharias for your prayer is heard. This is, Intriguing for me because earlier in Luke, it tells us that Zacharias and Elizabeth have given up on having children and they have come to a place of peace about it and they're still serving God righteously. And so I wondered in this moment, what prayer was it that the angel of the Lord was listening to and that God was answering? And I realized that just because Zacharias and Elizabeth had buried that prayer, didn't mean that God had buried it in heaven. Don't worry, I'm coming. I'm a um, the text doesn't say they buried that prayer. No, you added that. You're adding a lot of stuff using your imagination. 
drive right down your street. God, give me the tongue of the learned that I can go after every buried prayer that is represented in this room. God, I'm asking right, hold on. I need to go in my prayer closet. God, I'm asking right now in the name of Jesus, that buried prayers that have been buried for decades after decades are being touched right now by the power of your spirit. Because when the angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, he said, I heard the prayer that you gave up on decades ago. And when I heard this word, from God, I heard God say that there are people who are going to be coming to church on Sunday who have buried their prayers. And I need you to tell them that buried prayers still reach heaven's ears. I'm going to say it again until it gets so far. Really? God told you to tell them that? Wow. Yeah. She's uh, long on uh, direct revelation, short on sound biblical exegesis, like non-existent on sound biblical exegesis. This text is about Christ, not you. On the inside of you, that hell cannot take it away from you. Buried prayers still reach heaven's ears. What am I saying? I'm saying that if God told you that you should start the business, but life told you to give up, that life is lying on what God said. What I'm saying that if God told you to protect your heart and life said to give it away, that life is lying about what God said. God is not a man that he shall lie. He did not put that dream down on the inside of you so that disappointment could take it away. I hear the angel. Uh, what dream is God supposed to have put down on? on the inside of me of the Lord reaching down for somebody's prayer somebody's buried prayer somebody's broken heart somebody who's given up on that child somebody who's given up on that dream you may have buried it but God why aren't you preaching the law to convict them of their sin and show them their need for a savior and the good news that a savior was born to them and for them. That's what Luke 1 is about. Luke 2 is about the same thing. In fact, all of Luke is about Jesus. Still ceasing. You may have been disappointed because it didn't happen on the time frame that you thought it should happen. So you gave up on it altogether. But I came here to tell you that buried prayers still reach heaven's ears. Buried prayers still reach heaven's ears. That the resurrecting power, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave can reach down past your excuses. Uh, yeah, resurrection power is going to resurrect your buried dreams, your buried prayers. Utter nonsense. It can reach down past your walls. It can reach past down everything that you've gained to masquerade what you really desire and pull you out and say, I know you still want it. I know you're still believing. And I'm telling you that me and you, the power of your prayer and the power of my spirit is enough to bring that dream back to life. The angel... The angel Gabriel tells him, don't be afraid. It's not over. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to pull the rug from underneath you. Don't be afraid. I didn't bring you this far to leave you. I actually brought you this far to catapult you into the next level of blessing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know people are walking away from you. Don't be afraid. I know the opportunities aren't shaking out the way that you wanted them to, but I'm telling you, don't be afraid. I still have a plan. Don't be afraid. You're still going to give birth to something. I feel that for somebody. There's still seed down on the inside of you. It's not. Yeah, I, I'm not birthing nothing, lady. 
for you to acquiesce and to start living your life in a pattern, in a routine. God says, I still have seed in the ground. I still got seed down in your soul. And the angel says to him, don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And he goes on to say all of these incredible things about the birth and the son and, and what he's going to do in the earth. And this is verse 15. I want to qualify your prayer real quick before we get too happy. I want to qualify your prayer because he tells Zacharias that your son will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. If you're wondering whether or not your prayer can come back to life, all you have to do is ask yourself one question can my prayer be filled with the holy spirit can my prayer be you know this is like holding out a carrot on a string on a stick never can quite get that carrot but there it is dangling in front of you and you're going to be do willing to do anything to grab that carrot but it's never designed for you to actually get a hold of and these are not the promises that god has made to us in christ we're not hearing anything about those promises. Instead, she's just dangling that carrot out there. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Because if it can be filled with the Holy Spirit, it can be resurrected like never before. Maybe when you were praying before, you were praying for something that would make your name great. I dare you to get crazy enough to start praying that God... Pray for something that will make my name great. What? Resurrect the prayers that will make his name great. When it becomes about establishing his kingdom and not establishing your name, you will see wonder-working power. You will see signs and... And then your name will be greater along with gods but yeah you know uh-huh taking over your life you're not clapping the way i'm preaching because if you knew the holy spirit the way i knew him you would understand that there is no weapon formed against it that can prosper you would understand that everything is going to work together for your good if you understood the holy spirit that i'm talking about you would know that addiction can't hold it that the criminal justice system can't keep it in chains if you knew the holy spirit i was talking about you wouldn't be worried about a come up from a man you would be asking god how can i get a come up from heaven i don't want my prayer resurrected for my own name i want it resurrected for your glory and for your name and i will not leave this temple until you do it if yeah, none of this has anything to do with luke chapter one somebody crazy enough to start worshiping in this house like i am not leaving this place until the prayer that i had when i was a child gets filled with the holy spirit god fill my yeah, fill your prayers with the holy spirit yeah, that's not theologically and doctrinally sketchy at all, is it? With your power. God, fill my dream with your spirit. God, I want to write books that change people's lives. I want to start a nonprofit that gets homeless people off of the street. I don't want a million dollars for a big car. I don't want a million dollars for a big house. I want a million dollars so that I can end poverty in my neighborhood. Yeah, a million dollars doesn't go a long way in Southern California. Can't even buy you a house in a decent neighborhood anymore. So that I can educate children on who to be in this world. I want to do something for your glory. And it's got to be filled with your spirit. Because I cannot do it by might. And I cannot do it through my own power. But if I could do it through your spirit. If I could do it through your spirit. 
generational curses could be broken. If I could do it through your spirit, then strongholds would come down. If I could do it through your spirit, then hell would get nervous. If I could do it with your spirit, generational blessings could be the portion of my family. I feel the presence of God in this place. The only thing that you need in this moment is the spirit of God hovering over every prayer that comes out of your mouth. Holy Spirit, touch every buried prayer. Holy Spirit, touch every idea, touch every purpose. Holy Spirit, lift your hand if you're in LA and you know this is for you. Lift your hand if you're in Denver and you know this is for you. Holy Spirit, I buried a dream. But as this woman has been preaching, there's been something striking down on the inside of me. And I hear God saying that it's time for me to open up that dream again. It's time for me to take a... Yeah, everybody's on their feet here. Yeah, this apparently is winding down now. Look at that idea. But this time I'm going to take a look at it through the eyes of righteousness. righteousness. This time I'm going to take a look at it through the eyes of your spirit. Jesus. All right, we're done. <sighs> yeah, I mean, carrot and stick. That's what that was. It's That setup is never designed to let you actually take a bite out of that carrot. Just keep you moving. You know, the promise, eventually that carrot's going to come close and you're going to be able to nibble on it. No, you're not. This is the devil's carrot and stick. And the devil's making promises for God that he never made. And there you are hoping that all of this will finally come through. And in the end, you're going to be left with a mouth full of ashes. Best way I can put it. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at fire Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.